Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How very nice to see so many of you here, although I can't, in fact, see you, but I can tell there are quite a lot of you. I'm just going to make sure, as I extricate this crib sheet, that I say the right thing about these very eminent guests that I have with me on the stage, um, because it would be terrible if I got anything wrong, particularly as I have to start with the fact they're both called Simon. <laughs> so that's going to be confusing, but one of them will be, I think, well-known to most of you is, of course... Simon Russell Beale, who was last uh, seen on this stage, I think. I don't think we've been on it since, Simon, have yep. you? In the role of King Lear, of which more later. And then on my immediate left is Simon Lovestone, who is, and I am going to read this out because I might very well get it wrong, is Professor of Translational Neuroscience and Dementia Research at the University of Oxford's Department of Psychiatry and visiting professor in old age psychiatry at King's College London's Institute of Psychiatry. So my guess is what he doesn't know about old age probably ain't worth knowing. Mm. So that's very good because that's what we're here to talk about. Because um, you may have noticed, possibly, that uh, Shakespeare is having a little bit of a moment this week. And um, the National Theatre is joining in in a number of ways, but one of them is that Today and tomorrow, there are three um, platforms which are looking specifically at Shakespeare and a particular issue or topic. Um, and the first of these is Shakespeare and old age, which we're here to discuss today. However, what we're going to start with is a little bit of a memory jog about what Shakespeare <laughs> is and indeed uh, who King Lear is, because Simon is going to start by uh, giving us one of the um, great speeches of Lear's. And once that's done, we will then launch into some discussion about what might be going on in this speech. Uh, just to give you the um, <clears throat> uh, environment of the speech, it's so recent not the need, which I'm sure a lot of you will know and he's addressing his daughters. And the reason why I chose this, because they said, would you do a bit? <clears throat> uh, was I can vaguely, firstly, I can vaguely remember it. And, <clears throat> and secondly, it has a lot of components in it about what I suspect we'll be talking about. <clears throat> oh, reason not the need. Our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as beasts. Thou art a lady, if only to go warm were gorgeous, why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm, but for true need. You heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man, as full of grief as age, wretched in both. If it be you that stir these daughters' hearts against their father, fool me not so much to bear it tamely. Touch me with noble anger, and let not women's weapons, water drops, stain my man's cheeks. No, you unnatural hags, I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall... I will do such things, what they are yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. And you think I'll weep? No, I'll not weep. I have full cause of weeping, but this heart shall break into a hundred thousand flaws, or ere I'll weep. Oh, fool, I shall go mad. There we go. <laughs> Uh, 
happy memories. <laughs> Indeed. Well, 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 locked into that speech is so much about who Lear was, who he is, and who he is becoming, that we might... Um, it's a, pi a pivotal it's moment. It's a pivotal it? moment, indeed. So before we start to talk about that, I wanted to ask Simon and Simon each a kind of slightly more general question than specifically about this play and this character. Um, because he, here we are in this great birthday week, and Shakespeare is on um, every billboard and in every newspaper and lauded and loaded with superlatives. And Simon himself has referred to him uh, in a platform, previous platform, which some of you may even have, uh, have, have, have been here for, uh, as a genius. This was written by a genius. This is, of course, it's fine because it was written by a genius. And I wanted to ask you, Simon, this Simon, um, what is it about Shakespeare? You've played so many of his roles. What is it that makes him worthy of these superlatives for you as a performer? Um, well, I've been asked this a lot, of course, over the last few weeks, mm. um, and it's very difficult to define. And there, there are various things to say. Firstly, he's not always good. And I know I hate saying that, but it is just worth remembering that he's not, he's not consistently perfect. But when he's good, my God, he's the best. And for an actor, he's certainly, uh, as Tom Stoppard once said to me, he exercises all your muscles. And he does, intellectual muscles, um, emotional muscles, physical muscles. Um, and what he's, he's good at is the really, really, really big things, isn't he? He's good at death and love and age and anger and fear and grief and all the, all the big things. Um, but also there's a little addendum to that. I would like to say he's also good at the really, really tiny things. I am um, recently, I was reading Wish of the Second recently, um, and uh, just to sort of remind myself what it was about, and there's an amazing moment when a man is told about the death of his sister while talking to his niece. Um, and about a page later he goes, oh, let's go, sister. Sorry, niece. And it's a completely insignificant moment, except for the fact that that's exactly what human beings do. And the plays are full of that. And I was saying before we started, there's a scene in Lear where he wakes up and sees Cordelia for the first time. And there's a piece of observational writing about what it's like to visit. A lot of you will have heard me say, say this, about what it's like to visit an older relative ill in hospital. It cannot be bettered. It cannot be bettered down to the fact that the scene ends with a daughter saying to her old, ill father, would you like to go for a walk? And him going, yeah, OK. I mean, mm. that, that's genius. Right, that's genius. OK, well, and Leah, I think we could probably all agree, is, is one of the biggest, because it contains so many of those very grand emotions, but mm -hmm. also, as you've already said, so much um, tiny mm -hmm. uh, focused detail. Simon, um, because we've, we've constructed this platform as being about Lear and old age, uh, Shakespeare and old age, I, I wanted to ask you about old age in general. Um, I, I spend most of my working life amongst people who are, if they aren't old, they're certainly getting close to it. Uh, me included. And um, I, ha I observe that whereas um, infancy, for example, uh, is fairly predictable if you leave out the, the bits of pathology around the edges, but broadly speaking, we know what to expect 
of the development of an infant, uh, old age is very, very unpredictable and um, variable. And I wondered whether you could just talk a little bit about perhaps why that is, but also just about what that means for us as human beings. Yes, and it is unpredictable, and I think it's unpredictable in slightly different ways and for different reasons, and I think in some ways Shakespeare picks up on that. So it's unpredictable because of pathology. This is a difficult time for the body. It's coming towards the end of its life, and it begins to decay, and how people cope with that, both biologically and uh, psychologically is very different. But it's also a time of changing relationship to the world. It's a time when you go from um, you know, the peak of your powers, which I think is about 55 and a little bit. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, to, a you know, to a certain, certain decline. But what's interesting is how uh, that decline is one of a societal decline. So your role in society is changing, and your role in some ways is declining, but in other ways it can be growing. So in many societies, more so in others than in ours, but also to a degree in ours, the elder is a, is a respected person. And in fact, I can't remember now whether it's Goneril or Regan, says this to him at some point in the play, um, old, wise, venerable. That's how you should be. And that is, of course, how we want all of our elders to, to be. We want them to be old, we want them to be wise, we want them to be venerable. And if there is a, a problem with the young, we want the elders to be silent. And that, that, is, that is where there is a tension, I think. Indeed. Well, Simon, y you're not old. You don't I'm 55. You don't fall... <laughs> <laughs> Well, you I couldn't think have chosen a we've age. just established Wikipedia. that that is at the peak of your powers, <laughs> so that's wonderful. Um, when you came to approach playing Lear, there are references in the text to his age, quite specific references mm. to his age, rather than just the fact that he's mm. old, um, which I think you excised, if I'm right, from the playing uh, the, text. The reference to him being 80. Yes. Yeah. So when you thought about how old he actually was and what difference being that old made what conclusions did you come Actually, to and now looking back on it I, d I think I think I probably would would have been quite happy to keep the 80 in actually funnily enough but um, because I never thought of him as anything but in his very last years um, because that's not always Lear isn't always played in that no way, um, at least by the end I suppose yeah. I mean it's, it's that double think process that Shakespeare does isn't it that at the beginning he could be 65 um, and at the end he could be in a couple of weeks 90 you know I, 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 I don't think actually looking back of it that I would it would have worried me to be called 80 by the end <coughs> and I certainly was very conscious of doing a, a very rapid physical decay so that it became because I watched a friend of mine get smaller and smaller I don't know with this particular feature of growing old but getting smaller and smaller physically smaller and smaller and smaller, and smaller. Um, uh, the uh, uh, first scene, uh, which we talked about very briefly before we came on, which I know you want to talk about, the, the first scene, I would say he's uh, at the height of his powers, probably. Yeah. And so therefore I would say... 55. 55, <laughs> yeah. Um, As it were. Psychologically. 
Yes. Um, so it's, it's a it's a it's a big metaphorical journey or non non realistic journey. Well, I know that the two of you mm. uh, might want to disagree a bit about what has actually or is actually happening to Leah in the course of the play. But then there was a point, presumably, when you came to the view that he was ill, that something yes. was happening I mean, I've to never him. done this before. Uh, and, um, and, and Simon, I know, would, and uh, many people did uh, find it rather dubious that I found a specific uh, pathological state uh, to base my performance on. But I, I've never done this before. I just thought, coming back to the idea of... Um, tiny observational writing that this was a this was a writer who'd seen somebody go through a type of dementia whatever dementia that was um and my nephew who was training to be a doctor and i've said this story before looked on the internet and found out uh found an essay by a psychiatrist i think it was who said i think Leah's suffering from Louis body and it, it was a useful tool um when later a radio programme asked me to come and talk about Alzheimer's and dementia to, on national radio, I said, <laughs> I'm not in the position to do that. Um, I've done an hour's research on, on this, and I'm, I, I'm, using it as, I, I'm using it to represent something on stage. The other thing is that Shakespeare is not there to produce a, a case history exactly. And another friend of mine who is a psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst actually, so I beg his pardon, said, of course, he seems to be sane at the end. I mean, that's a debatable point anyway, and, uh, but you can play him as not demented at the end. Yeah. Well, so. you, you, you found this very specific kind of dementia that, that body, served yeah. your purposes, mm. which it I had, it had It had things in like, and I think I'm right, Simon, that it had things like uh, a tendency to hallucinate. Uh, um, Think I might not yeah. Think. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and perhaps you could perhaps you could tell yeah. us what it is that Simon was was talking about. <laughs> yeah. And also, I think you have a slightly different view. So perhaps mm. we well, could. It's a nuanced, different view. Mm. So, so the the disease that Simon's referring to, your nephew found on the internet. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> was uh, dementia. He's with now qualified. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> was dementia with Louis bodies. And one of the things that I found interesting. Uh, reading, because there's a big psychiatric literature about Leah, which I've read now. Um, one of the <laughs> things that I find interesting reading that, which is slightly, I think, shameful for my profession, is that for years, I mean, this goes back to the 1840s, there is just an assumption that Leah is senile and that word is used, and it's used interchangeably with what we'd now say is Alzheimer's disease. And it is categorically wrong. There is no possible way Lear is senile. He has none of the characteristics of senility. But dementia with Lewy bodies is a disorder that only was described in the 1980s. It was hidden in plain sight from psychiatrists and, and brain doctors uh, for many, many years. We, we didn't know about this disease for various technical reasons, which you probably won't want me to go into. But it is quite right, he, I, and I think it was a brilliant observation, and Leah could have had dementia with Lewy bodies. So the characteristic features of dementia with Lewy bodies are a fluctuating state, so people can be very, very ill one moment, and really in full clarity and sanity the next. And that changes. So often, that as a doctor, they get misdiagnosed by us. M many, many times people with this disorder until it becomes apparent in retrospect. 
that's one. Another is that uh, dementia of Lewy bodies molecularly is Parkinson's disease, but not in the bit of the brain that controls movement, but the bit of the brain that controls thinking. So it is actually molecularly the same as Parkinson's. So you speak about the pill rolling tremor, yeah. the shuffling gait, yeah. the difficulty in getting up of a chair, and the various physical characteristics. And then the third component, which is the most striking one, is the visual hallucinations. And the visual hallucinations are typically of animals, which Leah has, but also of people. But And here is one of the reasons why he's not quite right for me, but I mean, it, uh, you know, it's a fiction. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, the when I read it as a sort of diagnostician, the visual hallucinations of people with dementia with Lewy bodies are typically not frightening. And they're often of small people. Can I give you an example? Mm. So there was, I'll disguise this a, a little bit uh, for sort of confidentiality reasons. But I had a patient uh, who had dementia of Lewy bodies and he was being treated for a psychosis, which he didn't quite have. So I went to see him. This was when I worked in South London at the Maudsley Hospital. And I saw this man and, and he was sitting by his French windows, out, look, looking out onto the shared garden in his council flat on the ground floor. And he told me about what he could see. And he said, well, he sees men, uh, lots of men, walking up and down the garden, and they had sandals on. And the sandals had straps. And they were wearing skirts. They were red skirts. I'm beginning to get an idea mm. of where this is going. And they're wearing metal. Here, breastplates, and they've got daggers or swords, and they've got helmets with a red plume. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you think they are? And he said, they're about this big. And he was really curious and interested and not frightened. And he described them walking up and down the garden. I said, well, what do you think they are? He said, well, he said, I think they might be soldiers, and probably Roman soldiers. But it's very odd, because you don't normally get Roman soldiers in Peckham. <laughs> <laughs> and it was... <laughs> he was curious, and he had an idea that this wasn't normal, but he couldn't sort of contextualise it. And the fact that they were small and, you know, a couple of thousand years out of date hadn't quite... Uh, and that's the, uh, you know, a very typical... If you see, the... The... the, <clears throat> the material it gives actors when they approach a part like this. It, for instance, I, when you were talking about whether they're real or not, when he sees Cordelia in the, in the famous, what I call the hospital scene, though it isn't the hospital scene, but he does, he's unsure whether that's a hallucination too, which I think is, you, is you, my brain goes, oh yes, oh yes, of course. Emotionally, that's such a valuable thing yes. that he, if he's a man who has been hallucinating, let alone obviously the dogs and the mouse, the famous mouse, um, but to, uh, suddenly, and she is real, what, what material that gives you as an actor to suddenly realise you're not hallucinating, she really is there, is, is invaluable, whether it's medically accurate or not. No, can, we, can we go back to the first scene? Because, Simon, I, I wanted to ask you about the progress of whatever form of dementia, we could, roughly speaking, agree that Leah probably might have been <laughs> suffering from, in this respect, that, that at the start of the play, he does something very strange, yeah. which clearly takes everybody by surprise. Yeah. And, and the beginning of the play, people are saying, is he really going to do this? 
what's happened? Has he gone bonkers? There's, there's something already beginning to build that uncharacteristic behaviour is, is, is emerging. However, and this was true in the way that you performed it, Simon, I think, and often is, the perception that we as the audience have is that his daughters and his court are definitely afraid of him. Yeah. And I suppose what I wanted to ask is, when people are moving from being in full possession of their faculties towards a state where actually they have lost their faculties in that transitional period, this is a very glib question, but do they become more themselves or less themselves? Because Lear's fearsomeness is very clear in that scene. It yeah, doesn't I mean, seem the, to be hmm. uncharacteristic because people... Um, I'll answer first, only because I think mm. Simon's might be a more interesting answer. But I, partly because, <laughs> <laughs> partly because I never, I never really settled with that scene, and I'd be interested. I haven't talked to many other Lears, but I suspect it's it's the real bugger, uh, and uh, and you have to make big decisions. I think probably, um, and uh, uh, Sam, the director, and I, uh, Sam was very keen on him being frightening, and I think that's right. I think he should be somebody. Who, is, who has been a, uh, a firm ruler. Uh, he also, which is my debate with Sam a little bit, was that he should be uh, admired and loved by certain people on stage, Kent and Cordelia uh, and Edgar later, um, uh, so that there is a quality about him. But uh, th this, this particular moment in time, that's not particularly evident. Um, and he does something which his, his greatest friend calls evil, and I think that's very important. It's evil what he does. Um, and uh, Jenny's heard me bat on about this a moment, about sentimentality in Shakespeare. I think, you know, we sort of sometimes tend to sort of step away from the horribleness of what Shakespeare portrays sometimes. And uh, what Lear does, I think, in the first scene is evil. It doesn't make any sense politically, emotionally, anyway. It's a bad, bad thing he does. Consequently, part of the process of self-discovery is about acknowledging that, which I don't think he gets to until right at the very end, if, if that, no, he does, no, he does. I'll, I'll give him that. He gets, he gets <laughs> to self-knowledge at the end, but it takes a long, long time. So I think it's a, it's, it's a scene that I've, I've found and still find profoundly puzzling. Um, yeah, can I ask you, so <laughs> it's so interesting. So he, 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 there's two parts to that first scene, aren't there? There's the demanding public um, declarations of love from his daughter, and then there's the dividing of the kingdom. Now, the demanding of the public declarations of love and admiration, I need to preface this by saying I'm the father of two daughters. <laughs> 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 Is that really evil? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think that's evil. I think that's foolish. I also think that's the improvisation. I've been terribly tempted. I, think, I have to say. <laughs> I think. I think the. I, you're right. The scene divides into parts, and one part is improvised, which is the. Oh, while you're there, while you're at it, tell me that you love me, because basically he knows the answer is going to be yes. Of course, we mm. love you. I mean, subliminally, he knows that. So, and um, that's what's so awful about Cordelia Games. Mm. I'm sorry, what a stupid game this is, because. Mm. It's meaningless. So, uh, but I think he, he, the way this speech is structured, where he says, uh, tell me that you love me, can be played very easily as a sort of, oh, I know. Just come, come on, tickle me, tickle yes. me, you know, stroke me. 
but the division of the kingdoms is, we know, already pre-planned because we have a scene at the very beginning of the play between Gloucester and Kent saying, we know there's going to be a division of the kingdoms. That, I think, is, 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 it doesn't make political sense. And right. therefore, I would define as, if that were Stalin or if that were a dictator doing that, you'd say that is profoundly politically uh, wrong, mm. bordering on evil. Mm. I can see that. Because it's, it's going it's to create war. Yes, and does. And does. Yes. Uh, can I... So, <laughs> I'll come back to the question of uh, personality and dimension, mm. because it is very, very interesting. Um, but the issue about what he's actually doing there, one of the things that I found resonated for me, uh, it's a, obviously it's a different world, but nonetheless, he wants to give up all of the work in being king. He wants to give up all of the responsibility. He wants none of the trouble, but he does want to keep his knights. He wants to keep all of the elements of his grand office. Now, I, I need to preface what I'm about to say, just in case this gets videoed or something, by saying I'm not referring, of course, to any of my colleagues who wouldn't do this in any possible <laughs> way. <laughs> However, there does something happen as academics get to be about 60, 65. Uh, they start thinking about what comes next. And many of them seem, it seems to me, they, they don't really want to do any teaching any longer. And they're going to give up all of their administrative work. And if they're clinicians, they're not going to do any of that. And of course, they're not going to do any research and be responsible. But they would rather like to keep their library card. Um, <laughs> and also, by the way, an office. And I need a small budget because, of course, I need to go to conferences <laughs> and, and so on. You know, there is, so yeah. it seems to me that to some degree, uh, Lear is becoming an emeritus. Uh, um, but your question was specifically around personality, and I think that's a very difficult one. There is no very fixed pattern. Supposedly, as people become dementia, one of the things that is said about people that their personality traits become concretized. Mm. Uh, they become less flexible, and, and some of those characteristics that they had before become accentuated. I'm not entirely sure or convinced about that. And what relatives will say to you is, and this is predominantly Alzheimer's disease because it's the commonest of dementias. But what relatives will say, it's very, very moving when you hear this. And they will use this word. It is a living bereavement. Your loved one is there. You're looking after them. The body is there. The mind and the personality is gone. It's the person has passed away. And, and that, is, that is the most tragic of things. Mm. Can, I, can I ask about the... Um this is in relation to the first scene, and to do with the personality, at, at about the moment when you think you might go mad. Because, of course, the one, the one first big hit of the play in Lear's journey is that moment when he goes, oh, let me not be mad, not mad, sweet heaven. Keep me in tender, let me not be mad. I mean, it's, it's, it's that one moment when you think, when the whole earth opens up. And, uh, so he must have some awareness that that might be where he's going, in which case, of course, as you all know, you could play that first scene in a rather wise way of saying this is a man who, th who knows he's losing his powers and is dividing it up as best he can. Um, what about that stage when... It's awful. The mind, I mean... No, it yeah. is awful for people. And um, 
one of the th one of the very first things to go as as if people let's assume he does have dementia as the dementia progresses one of the very first things to go is that insight or ability to recognize but in the preceding years when you know your faculties are going that is extraordinarily difficult for anybody to live with what we now know and this is a really interesting time for science right now because what we now know is that for alzheimer's disease and dementia with lewy bodies the molecular pathology in the brain starts 10 to 20 years before the disease onset. So this is bad news for <laughs> you and me. <laughs> we come back to those mid-50s yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that is when the pathology starts. So you live for 10 to 20 years. It's not being missed by doctors. It's not that we can't pick it up. It's just, you know, it's causing no symptoms. But the person themselves begins to get an inkling that their faculties are going. Speaking as a scientist, uh, and a doctor that gives us some opportunities and we're now beginning to do clinical trials of drugs that we want to give to people in that period to prevent the actual dementia from manifesting which would be a preventative strategy but of course Leah had none of that he just would have had to recognize that his faculties his ability are beginning to go and one of the first things to go which you pick up in this and I must admit I, I just hadn't realized but it's brilliantly done is um, a loss of language and you become less articulate you can't finish sentences it's called nominal dysphasia and um, you, people will find that their partners uh, begin to fill in the sentences for them My wife's in the audience there's a warning there <laughs> um, it begins to happen. I mean, and it's it's in, very in painful. That, in that particular speech, because you said you didn't pick it up when you're reading it, that the that it could be read as a tumble. Um, I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall. I will do such things. What they are yet, I know not. But they shall be in terror severe. Um, it could be a tumble of of that. There's too much information. He wants to get out. But I just remember in the rehearsal when I when Sam said, "Just stop, just stop," and they are, your whole brain has emptied. And it is a terrifying thing terrifying. to actually a act, is that moment. And, and you said, take as long as you like to get, to get the words back. Um, the, other re the other reason why I chose that speech is, and I don't know whether this is linked with, is um, he has this thing about not crying. Right me through the play. So it's, it's again, this, it's Shakespeare and the little things, is that you, you suddenly locate something as an actor in rehearsal and you think my god I've, I've mentioned not crying so often um and doesn't he does cry oh no that's right she cries Cordelia. anyway crying is very very important and that thing is i will not cry i will not cry i will not cry um and he is obviously crying um it seems to me so whether that emotional fragility is part of it as well i don't know yes well that would bring me on to what what for me, as a psychiatrist, when I look at Leah, uh, I'm making a differential diagnosis, we would say, between two diseases. Dementia with Lewy bodies is perfectly plausible. Um, but what I would have thought there's some evidence for is that he has bipolar disorder, and specifically a bipolar disorder that fluctuates very rapidly. It does happen in old age. It's called rapid cycling disorder or rapid cycling affective disorder. And I think that there are many parts of Lear that would be compatible with that particularly we were talking about earlier the punning of the word association the piece yeah. where he sees a mouse and he, he says something mm. like peace 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 this piece of, piece of cheese yes mm. and he's playing on the word peace and peace and that is exactly what people 
in stages of mania do. Um, when he comes back on at the end with the crown of weeds, uh, that is very, very typical of somebody in a manic state. Well, actually, that just suddenly reminded me of one I've got it in my head. That that first entrance when he comes on with the this is a te this is a textual bit of anarchiness, but <laughs> when he comes on with the flowers on his head, uh, he he shouts off or shouts to somebody, "No, they cannot touch me for coining." And there's another version which is, "No, they cannot touch me for crying." Hmm. And I thought I'm going to cheat here and go for the. Well, it's not a cheat. I'm going to go for the other option. They cannot touch me for crying. They can't punish me for crying. And that, at that stage, a very important moment for me, at that stage, he, he's allowing himself to cry and he won't be punished for it. I just wanted to touch on the fact that this is not Shakespeare's only portrait of old age. And that, of course, he wrote another world-famous little vignette describing the progress of human uh, development from infancy to old age and at the end the last two bits which say you know the sixth age is somebody who's lost power as it were and the seventh age is somebody who's lost their powers they are gone in just the way that you describe you also said Simon that um, this is a very important moment for um, uh, science you also said to us earlier that so it was when Shakespeare was mm. writing and I just wondered if between you, you might touch on Shakespeare's wider view of old age and medicine mm. as it appears in the plays. I, I saw, uh, I'll, mine's less detailed. I saw The Tempest last night, The Globe, a very brilliant performance by Timot Mullen. I'm just sudden, I was suddenly aware that, again, uh, the anger of uh, a man writing, God knows whether he thought he was dying or whether he... But he must have known he was you know, coming to the point. But that amazing speech, um, our rebels now are ended and these are actors, as I foretold you, are melted into air, into thin air. And I was listening to it thinking, God, that's such a beautiful speech. And then thinking, what he's saying is furious. He's saying everything, everything that you have just seen, Ferdinand and Miranda, is a complete puff of nothingness, like our world. And, and I, I just every so often I, I thought with Shakespeare it happened in, in Lear when he does the marvellous speech about being in prison and you think the beauty of the writing is sort of belied or contradicted by the savagery of the Rage. thought mm. and the whole of that tempest I saw last night was about a man talking about being an emeritus who is going off to be emeritus Duke of Milan with nothing to do and I got at the end of the performance I thought He's not going to last two months back in the land. He's got nothing to do. And we talked earlier about Falstaff, um, that those two plays... Dominic Drumgoul, by the way, did say to me last night, you're obsessed with death. I said, well, <laughs> Falstaff seems to me to be one of two characters in, in those two plays who are dying men. And they di they're dying from the very beginning. And those two plays are, especially the second, of course, famously, are meditations on, on decay. Um, mm. I, they seem to be that seemed to be something that exercised him well it was an extraordinary time when Shakespeare was alive and writing um, just a few years before Shakespeare was born Paracelsus died Paracelsus was a Swiss 
um, variously called scientist, doctor, <coughs> or alchemist. <coughs> and the fact that he was both of those, he was one of the people that is frequently pointed to who mark the point when medicine transitioned from the medicine of the ancients to a medicine that we would understand today. So the medicine of the ancients, Galen's humours, and you see this in the play, he talks about his choleric, mm. um, rising of choleric substances and, and biliousness. And these are the ideas of the Greeks. And what Paracelsus did was talked a bit about that and the disease coming from the stars, but also understood toxicology and how the body got poisoned. That was immediately before Shakespeare was born, but an almost exact contemporary of uh, Shakespeare was William Harvey, who was the first real scientific medic who described the circulation of blood through the body. So it must have been an extraordinary time to be thinking about the body. But of course, it wasn't an absolute transition. And one of the passages that I'm really interested in, uh, in Lear, where you can see some of the ancient view of medicine, um, but actually, I think, to the shame of medicine, transitions through to today. And that's the piece where Lear, um, again, it's one of the uh, pieces where he's got some insight into losing his mind and he's fearful. And he's, he, he mentions hysterica passio. And he feels it rising. Mm. He says, get down, hysterica <coughs> passio. Now, hysterica passio is a syndrome that came from the ancient Greeks, and it's the wandering womb syndrome. <laughs> now, I, nobody really knows what they actually thought. I don't believe that people were stupid, but I, I think so. I, don't, I think they were talking metaphorically mm. rather than physically. But nonetheless, it's the idea that things down there are affecting your sensibilities and the way you're feeling. And it was predominantly a disease of women, of course, but not exclusively. And Shakespeare is really fearful, not only of losing his mind, but losing it in a very feminine way. Yes. And of course, he's Never been emasculated it. by mm. his daughters. Yeah. Um, Food we not so much to bear to touch me, uh, let not women's weapons water. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think that Shakespeare's really <clears throat> making a very deliberate ploy here. Now, I think the thing that is shameful to the medical profession is that that idea that this is a woman's disorder actually hasn't entirely gone away. So moving to the turn of the 20th century, 19th to the 20th century, Charcot working in the Salpetriere was the first to really point out how hysteria wasn't wandering wounds, some sort of physical problem, but was a problem of the mind. And he did these demonstrations with young women, they were almost always young women, where he would induce a hysterical state. And Freud was one of his, one of the members of that audience. So much, and, and that idea that these are somehow feminine disorders or, or somehow the disorders of the, the weak and they, they haven't entirely gone away. So we moved from hysterica passio to neuroses, to hysteria. Um, and even when I was training, there was still a sense that these kind of disorders, if they affected a male, it was a little bit feminizing, or you know, you were, you were maybe not as strong as you ought to be. There was a little sense of moral fiber. 
that had been lost. And that, that is a deeply misogynist, sexist, and just wrong view about mm -hmm. uh, the state of the mind. But it is one that we can see transitioning from mm -hmm. the ancients mm -hmm. through Shakespeare. And would account for, today. possibly for some, if not all, of the stigma that attaches to much so. mental disorder now. Very much Still so. now. Very much so. And we've got Lady Macbeth, of course. Yeah. Well, and can I reflect on that as well? Because <laughs> <laughs> it will be your turn Sorry. in a minute. It Sorry. really will be. <laughs> the dreaded word. <laughs> Another supremely accurate portrayal of mental illness is by Edgar uh, when he oh. adopts the persona of Tom of Bedlam. I trained at the Bedlam at, at the Bethlehem Royal Hospital, and um, it was already halfway through its history by the time Shakespeare wrote this. But he describes, in effect, somebody with schizophrenia really well. But then um, there is that passage where they talk about how the public react to people with mental mm. illness, either with bans or with prayers. And I wish that I could say that psychiatry was so very different today. It is better than it was in Shakespeare's time. But there is still, you know, there is still that harboring sense that we don't understand enough and we don't do enough. We need to do more, better. Uh, in a more caring way for people with all sorts of mental illness, not just the bans and not just the prayers, but some real actions. We do have to stop right there, ladies and gentlemen, because there is to be a show on this stage very shortly. Um, I will just say that if you are interested in hearing more about Shakespeare and uh, tomorrow, uh, um, Lenny Henry will be here in the afternoon with George Agaya to talk about Shakespeare and migration. And in the evening, or at this sort of time, um, uh, uh, Claire, uh, Claire Higgins. Higgins and Julie Myerson, the novelist, will be here to talk about Shakespeare and family. So I hope some of you will be there for those. Meantime, can I thank you very much for being here, and can I ask you to thank both Simons for a really, really interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs>